0: What ho, jolly podders! I'm Ben Shires, and you're whoever you are, and this is the Dave Weekly. Phew, and I always thought I was bad at introductions. Well, now we've got that out of the way, and we're all friends, let's move on to the small talk. I believe that's what you're supposed to do next. Okay, so, how are you? Oh, you don't say. But it'll clear up with the cream. Marvellous. And how are things going with that person you were seeing? Oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, don't do anything rash. Actually, that's a poor choice of words under the circumstances. Abort! Abort! Right, well, it looks like I've well and truly dug myself into a conversational hole. Luckily, today's guests are more than adept at getting us out of it. First, we have the engaging, enlightening and surprisingly raunchy Giles Brandreth, who we met, where else, but in an upmarket London hotel, giving us a little insight into his very interesting life. And hot on his heels is the very excellent Holly Walsh, who turned up on a folding bicycle, although I should point out that it was unfolded when she rode it. What an age to live in. Well, listen, I'm delighted, if not a little in awe, to welcome to the show a writer, a broadcaster, former MP, government whip, founder of the award-winning Teddy Bear Museum, also a a former European Monopoly champion and president of the British Scrabble Players, uh, it's Charles Brandreth.
1: I'm very excited to be here. Big Bad Ben. (laughs) I tune into the show on a regular basis. Uh, I never miss a Dave podcast if I can help it, (laughs) in the hope of hearing somebody going, Big Bad Ben, and they don't.
0: Well, I mean, you know, it has been noted, it's sadly lacking in all the prior podcasts to this one, Giles, but thankfully we've got you along to redress the balance. I'm here.
1: I'm here to redress and I'm excited to be here. Now, what are we going to talk about?
0: Uh, well, hopefully a lot about you, because as much as I enjoy talking about myself, and I sincerely do, as you can imagine, uh, you've got such a, an astounding CV, a brilliant career to delve into.
1: I tell you, you find me here, Ben, in a state of a mixture of exhaustion and excitement. I've recently returned from Edinburgh. Yes. I was performing on the Edinburgh Fringe, and it's the fourth time I've been to Edinburgh, and Edinburgh really changed my life, because I used to be a Member of Parliament. Mm-hmm. I was a Member of Parliament until the people spoke. <laughs> and in my case, they spoke in no uncertain terms. I mean, I knew I had contempt for my constituents, <laughs> but it was a slight shock to the system to find the feeling was entirely mutual. And my wife said to me, ''Look, Giles, when one door closes, it's shut.'' They don't want you anymore. They're not interested in you. They don't like you. You didn't just lose. It was catastrophic. It was a humiliation. Uh, get on with doing something else. And I thought, what do I want to do? And I went to Edinburgh. I went mm. to the Edinburgh Fringe, and I put on a show there. We did a hundred musicals in a hundred minutes, and it was huge fun and a huge success. We won the you know best most popular audience show. We did a tour. 60 places around the UK. We played in the West End. It was fabulous. Mm. And I loved Edinburgh because, of course, in Scotland, they don't have MPs. Conservative MPs. They don't know what the idea is. They had no (laughs) idea who I was. They just thought, here's this man, and he seems to be quite funny. So it was a big success. And the Edinburgh Fringe is a very forgiving, loving place. And you meet people of all ages, all types. And I loved it. And I went back a second time and did Shakespeare, Troth Night, a musical version. That was fun. (laughs) Then I went back a third time and did stand up. And that seemed to go quite well. And so this time they said to me, bring a new show. And I'd got interested in
0: happiness. Yeah, I've read about this. This is quite interesting. It's
1: very interesting. It's particularly interesting because uh, I discovered, well, it's well known, that happy people will live seven to ten years longer than unhappy people. Wow. Yeah. So it makes it so my show if you come to see my show looking for happiness buy my book the seven secrets of happiness you don't it doesn't just enhance your life it extends your life
0: incredible and i imagine by people coming to your show buying your book makes you happier so it's extending your life As well, I mean, it's happiness all round. I can tell you, there's there's oodles of it. And it came,
1: it came about because fifteen years ago,
0: when I lost my seat, you know, when the people spoke. So this, this was when the Labour landslide happened in 1997. 1997, Labour
1: landslide. In comes Tony Blair, full of hope. He was quite pale in those days. He's just become this funny orange colour in more recent years. He's now the sort of Dale Winton of the international. Um, peace process <laughs> nice guy though and a lovely wife too i like sheree no no <laughs> a genuine user just doesn't take a very good photograph anyway a good woman a, a, a nice power if you're into power couples they are good people on the top trump scale they're they, right? they are yeah emphasis on the trump anyway <laughs> uh, he sweeps in i'm swept out what do i do and i do feel they say you shouldn't take it personally but I did take it personally. I mean, I was a conservative. I was a loyal conservative, though. You know, when John Major became the leader of my party, I began to go grey. Instinctive, <laughs> visceral loyalty. You know, when, Ann, when, when William Hay became the leader of my party, that's when I began to go bald. i just do it.
0: Uh, <laughs> I thought I'm, you were going to say, and when Anne Widdicombe joined, that's when I became yeah, the exactly. virgin again. It suddenly,
1: thought, it suddenly occurred to me, anything could have happened. <laughs> uh, and indeed, when they started the coalition... You know, the two lovely posh boys, Nick yeah. and Dave, getting it together, both over six foot tall, glossy hair, rather attractive in their own way. That's when I thought, well, maybe I can come out as a little bit gay. <laughs> so I lose my seat in 1997. I've got to do other things. I go to Edinburgh. I get onto the fringe. The people there are friendly. I do these shows. And this year, they w- I like to do different things each time. Mm. And I thought, I'll do a show about happiness because having lost my seat... I did find it hurtful. And at the same time, it coincided with the death of my best friend who'd been at school with me. And then my brother died, my sister died, my father died, not so surprisingly. He was much older. Um, And I thought, oh, God, it's all a bit grim. But I was the fellow in The Funny Jumpers, Mm. Mr. Being Jolly. This isn't right. You should be happy. You've got everything in the world. You've got a lovely wife, wonderful children, good job. You've got to get to grips with yourself. And I'd read somewhere that Sigmund Freud, You know I mean by Freud? The great Mm -hmm. Dr. Freud had said that to be happy, you need to love and to work. And I thought, well, I've got friends and family to love and I've got interesting work to do. And then suddenly, of course, I lost my job. I wasn't an MP anymore. And friends and family, they were literally dying around me. And I thought, actually, Freud, you haven't got it quite right because to love and to work, it's easy to say. It sounds good, something for the fridge door. To love and to work (laughs) makes you happy. But actually, you can lose your job. Love, it can all go wrong. I need something that actually is more sustaining than that. And I thought I'm going to find out how to be happy. Uh, Freud, I had his name in my address book. I looked, uh, phoned up, turned out to be Clement Freud. (laughs) Very different thing, grandson of Dr. Freud. Maybe some of it's rubbed off. But it hadn't. Ah. (laughs) Uh, I was listening to the radio, and on the radio, on the wireless, on a Sunday morning, I heard this voice, an Irish lilting voice, a psychiatrist called Professor Anthony Clare. And this man presented a programme on BBC Radio 4 called In the Psychiatrist's Chair. And he had different famous people come and chat to him. And he was a marvellous programme. And he did it for several years. And he was clearly a very wise dude. So I got hold of him. I made an appointment. I flew to Dublin and met Professor Anthony Clare, and I said to him, I'm looking for the seven secrets of happiness. And he smiled.
0: Yeah. <laughs> hang on, hang on a second. You, you came there, it sounds like you're on some kind of Indiana Jones quest. You were looking for the seven secrets. I was. Did you know there were seven? Did he tell you? How well, did he you... did laugh at that. He said, seven. Are the seven? Of them? Yeah. And so you've I got said, eight. I'm not interested. Stop I, at seven.
1: <laughs> I said, well, it's a sort of magic number. And he said, <laughs> well, he said, let's see if we can find the seven. And... We began chatting. We began talking about my parents. And I asked him, I said, why do my parents, people of my parents' generation, my father was in the Second World War, Hmm. fought in the Second World War, you know, risked his life. My mother was in London during the Second World War, bombs falling in London. I said, why do they talk about the Second World War as the happiest time of their lives? And many people of my parents' generation, your grandparents' generation, say, oh, the war was the best time of our life. Why is that? And he said, well, that's quite easy to explain. During the Second World War, people at home they felt united. There was a common purpose. There was a country Mm. that actually agreed about one thing. There was this sense of unity and common purpose, and that made them feel happy. And the people at the front, the guys, it was mostly blokes, uh, in the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, they were risking their lives, but they were being tested. Mm -hmm. He said, and all the research shows that being tested is an important element of being happy. He said, you'll very rarely find happy people sitting around doing nothing. They've got to be engaged with life. And I thought, this man is intriguing. Mm. So from this basis, we began exploring and trying to discover what those seven secrets were. And I've now turned it into a show. One of the rules is... Uh, come actually, see the show. <laughs> well, no, it isn't. You don't need to see the show. You can just buy the book. And, but if you don't come to see the show, it is quite fun, actually. Uh, one of, I tell you one of the rules is to um, not resist change Right. Uh, Loose change? Or are no. we talking wider ranging? We're, we're, we're talking change in your life. And so people might think, oh, God, I'm going to see him. Uh, go on, do it. Go on. Because uh, I find change very difficult. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I do not want to learn another frigging password. I can tell you that much. <laughs> uh, and I was in Sainsbury's Local this morning and put down my bag and suddenly I heard this voice speaking at me, you know, uh, unidentified object on bagging area. F off. You know, I'm not interested. Uh, I, I find change very difficult, but you should take change on
0: board. Mm. Although difficult to have a conversation with that machine, I oh, found. but quite fun. <laughs> actually, quite fun. They're very self-obsessed. I bet they're, they're not They're self-obsessed, happy.
1: they're unhappy, and they're not interested in you either. Yeah. They
0: really aren't. In fact, that woman sounds very tetchy. You know, she, I think she's got bigger issues than unidentified objects in her bagging area. She has. And actually, she's now suffering from abuse because I kicked her. Yeah, so, uh, listen, you've done so much in your career, Giles, and I really yes. want to talk about some other stuff. Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, you were part of the uh, pornography. Uh, ah, inquiry with Lord Longford I was, that's and a long this, time ago this is a, I heard a Radio 4 documentary on this about three or four years ago I listened uh, with acute interest Because this was in an area, this was in the 70s When you got the likes of Mary Whitehouse uh, Doing her moral crusades Against uh, it, uh, moral indecency On television, in the press And uh, so What was your role, I mean what did you actually do Because you, you, didn't you have to go to Denmark And we visit did. sex clubs
1: It was amazing
0: It sounds like uh, a very in-depth I Inquiry. I,
1: was, I was just down from Oxford University. And Lord Longford, people may not know who he is, uh, and he, more. he died a few years ago, went well into his 90s. He was a great guy in many ways. He was a uh, Catholic convert. He'd been a, a minister in Harold Wilson's government. Um, he was uh, a prison visitor,
0: mm. uh,
1: a prison reformer. Bit of a frost at parties, to be honest, chiefly because <laughs> he liked to bring Myra Hindley with him. Anyway, uh, but he was a good man. And he launched this crusade against the scourge of pornography in our society. Mm. And he wanted some younger people on his committee because he had a lot of old folk and he wanted some younger people. So he asked me, and wait for it, Cliff Richard. And- <laughs> We were the two young guys, and Cliff was gorgeous. We well, still is, um, because of all that oil of Olay. But, <laughs> I mean, Cliff was gorgeous, and he turned down these lovely little velvet trousers and little lovely shirts with frills on, and I really took to Cliff in a big way. Um, and was, well, that was one of the upsides of being on the pornography committee. And I really was. I mean, what you, The you, upside was Cliff Richard. <laughs> well, a bit of a bonus yeah. on a regular <laughs> basis, going to meetings with Cliff Richard. You know, he was in his 20s then. He was an attractive boy. I see. And he could sing, and he looked good. Um, <laughs> well, what, was, what was Cliff Richard's view on pornography? He was against it. Was he? He was against it. Well, uh, he Depressed was not Brushed up it. against it? Or no, he-, he wasn't brushed up against it. No, <laughs> he was against it for the reason that people... Uh, what is interesting is that a lot of things that Lord Longville was mocked about we actually would now agree with. And I did join this pornography committee and we did go to these sex clubs. I mean, I've still got the raincoat I bought at the time. Uh, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and what purpose
0: did the raincoat have in these sex clubs?
1: Because everyone wore a raincoat to a sex club. It was, the, it was obligatory to wear a... Ra- My wife sewn up the pockets now. But I, <laughs> I, I've still got it.
0: It's down there in the cloakroom. LAUGHTER There'll be more smiles with Giles in a bit, but first up, it's time for some Jolly with Holly. Walsh, that is. Holly Walsh, welcome to the Dave Weekly.
2: Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Very hot.
0: Yeah, well... Hot and sweaty. That's how you like to arrive, right?
2: This is how I feel when I'm doing a podcast. Holly Walsh is calm,
0: and she is hot. Yeah, that's me. Is partially the reason you're hot, because you're the first comedian I've known to arrive at the Dave Weekly on their own folding bicycle.
2: Yes, that's me. I came on my bike... And I miss, uh, I misinterpreted the weather somewhat, and I'm right. now a sweaty mess. So <laughs> I apologise for that. I'm just glad no one can smell me on this podcast.
0: Well, you say that, but... That's why you're, that's
2: why you're sitting 18 foot away from me You right have now. stink
0: lines. I've it's never awful. seen that on a person before. I just thought they were reserved for the Beano. It's awful, you, yeah. No, actually, you are, you're only radiating loveliness. You don't look sweaty at all. Do you know, it's like one of those things where you think you, you're so much harsher on yourself Than other people would be. I think you've got to have a very distinct personal musk in order for that to be detected. Everybody
2: has a personal musk.
0: They do, but you have to get usually quite close in order to smell that.
2: I don't know. I've I've, um, I've seen a few, mainly gentlemen on uh, the tube or bus, who've had a very distinct musk from... Fifteen or twenty foot away from me, you know that. I thought you were there. going to talk
0: about ages then, and the different ways that that developed within no, young no, gentlemen. No, just, just I thought you are a real musk connoisseur for I, a minute. I'm,
2: I've been up close to a lot of men's armpits <laughs> just because I am the height of most men's armpits. So on any kind of public transport, I tend to be eye level with a gland. Yeah. <laughs> Or sitting down, same principle.
0: Exactly. I mean, it's good to know where you stand on those issues as well. Well, I know where
2: I stand, and I stand in the gland. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> in the gland stand.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so let's talk about something away from Live Standard, which obviously you're doing a lot of at the moment, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, kind
2: I've of, kind of gone back to it a bit, which is quite exciting.
0: But you've done all sorts as well. I yeah. mean, you've done uh, TV presenting. I went and see you, actually, when you did uh, TNT. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was a while ago now, you and that Jack Whitehall. That was ages
2: ago, yeah. Me and Jack did a show for Channel 4, which yeah. was on very late. About four, uh, four, four, four five
0: years ago, something yeah, like something that. Yeah, something like in that. In the it's summer, weird. I remember queuing in an extremely long queue and just making the cut-off point for it, which was quite wow. exciting at the time. Um, and is
2: that just a touch Jack Whitehall, or was that q it? Was
0: no, it- no, no. I mean, I have obviously uh, you know, always longed to touch him and his and his little beard. But, yeah. uh, no, it was. I just wanted just to see telly being made. I mean, this was at a point before I was, you know, working in the industry. And I think yeah, yeah. there's just a rush from actually seeing things happen, which I imagine is the same sort of rush that you got last year when you got a sitcom commissioned yeah, yeah. and made.
2: Yeah, it was. I've done. I've been very, very lucky in so far as I've, heard, I've sort of done a a lot of different things within comedy mm. and uh i think probably i'm a jack of all trades a bit but i really like i like the fact that you can think of a joke and it doesn't have to go and stand up or it doesn't have to go like a, a it could you could think of a joke and you're like that's funny that would work really well as a sketch or as a scene or as a you know bit of stand-up or whatever and having that kind of Choice is quite mm. exciting. Also, you could, there's jokes I could never do, but I could write a character who could do those jokes, and that's kind of fun. And that's why you just have to do hundreds of rewrites. It's all about rewriting.
0: So, I mean, we, we skirted around it, but this was Dead Boss, by the way, that you... Were, yeah, 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 that's the uh, show I did
2: with um, Sha- Sharon Horgan. Yeah,
0: and you've been writing that with her for ages, because I read an interview when you were calling it Bitches.
2: Bitches, yeah. It went through so many titles. It was called, it was called Bitches for Ages, and then it was called my so-called life sentence for oh, a long that's, time. That's good. And then it and then it got to Dead Boss. So mm. It really did have a lot of. Uh, and it titles. didn't get
0: commissioned when it was called Bitches. I mean, now you're back doing the the stand-up, but you, do you think there can be sort of running in parallel, sort of the, the sitcom side of things and the stand-up? Uh, or... well,
2: that's sort of what I've been doing this year, and it's kind of fun, but it is a double life. You just you do feel like it, by day I sort of I kind of do an office job. I sit down with the computer and write, and by night I'm. Standing in front of groups of people, um, you know, talking about fingering um, <laughs> clowns. Let's go with clowns this time. Yeah, but, you know, like I think uh, I think it is a double life, and I kind of think you have to just you have to do one or the other for a, you can do both for a bit, but not not all the time. You have mm. to sort of dip in and out. But this year, I think I really want to plow on with stand up. That's the that's what I'm kind of enjoying at the moment and stuff.
0: What? i was wondering is what's the most nerve-wracking thing to read is it the review of your stand-up show or the review of your sitcom
2: i think the stand-up i'd take it more personally mm. the because stand-up is just me on stage and it's me saying my jokes that i wrote so if people hate them or hate me or it's just so <laughs> many things to hate about it that are personal to me yeah whereas in a where in a show i could write something and the fact that the actress is a trillion tyre is just brilliant. You know, she could deliver the joke and get a laugh from it because she just sold the joke so brilliantly and mm. improve on it and things. I just think it's a collaborative thing. And I there's so many variables in, in a TV show that could go right or wrong that you kind of have to be... a. I don't, I don't know, I just definitely don't get quite... I mean, I really want it to be great and I really want to be proud of it, but I also... I find reviews for stand-ups just that bit more personal. <laughs> it's been
0: lovely speaking to you. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for dropping by. And uh, where can people see you and doing your many gigs?
2: Well, I my club, I have a club that runs every other week in uh, New Cross in mm-hmm. South London. And uh, it starts on Monday. We've got Stuart Lee, but it's every other Monday. And it's called Happy Mondays. And you can find it at happymondayscomedy.co.uk. I think. But you (laughs) Google it, Google
0: it. Yeah, exactly. Google's there for a reason, so we don't have to remember detail. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Well, thanks for coming in, and I'll hopefully pop by myself, because it sounds great. Thank you. Great. (laughs) Right, that's it for Miss Walsh. Now it's back to Mr. Brandreth. As I say, Giles, there's so much that I would like to talk to you about. One of the things is uh, your, your career as an author. Uh, now, you've got your Oscar Wilde series of books, uh, which I've had the pleasure, oh. the distinct pleasure, of reading some, and I think they're absolutely excellent, but... Um, but for the reason uh, not only that they're well-written, but I think they're quite brave in that you take on uh, two giants of the literary world, Oscar Wilde, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, and write them about, about them in a fictional way. And you have to voice these characters who are so famous for having their own voice, for being able to articulate themselves in the most resounding and loved ways. That must have been some undertaking.
1: Well, I discovered... By chance, that Oscar Wilde and Arthur Conan Doyle had met and had become friends mm.
0: at the Langham Hotel. If I'm um, quite a, a Doyle fan myself and dabble in Wilde, indeed. That plaque, there's a plaque yeah. outside the Langham Hotel. Yeah, you can still go to so it on the Strand if you're ever there.
1: Yeah, and
0: and, uh, and, uh, and then both met to discuss uh, like what turned out yeah. to be critical novels. I unveiled that plaque, you know. Did you? I, it was my idea to have that
1: plaque. That is the, so cool. Because when I was an MP, I used to unveil plaques on a regular basis. Until I got to a doctor's surgery in my constituency, I pulled the little string and the velveteen curtains parted, and then I read the words on the plaque that I'd (laughs) unveiled. It said, this plague has been unveiled by Giles Brand (laughs) with MP. So I gave up. But the last plaque (laughs) I did was the one commemorating the meeting in 1889 between Oscar Wilde, Arthur Conan Doyle, invited by an American publisher to meet to talk about writing, novels. Mm. And the result of this meeting was that uh, Conan Doyle was persuaded to write the second Sherlock Holmes story. It's like, the
0: Sign of the Four. Yeah, yeah, he might
1: never have written another Sherlock Holmes story. And Oscar Wilde wrote what became The Picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah. And so I thought these two people, they obviously got on well together, mm. because Conan Doyle said about that evening it was a golden evening, and yeah. wild completely. Well, he was just a struggling
0: surgeon. He was, he was a nobody who couldn't get patients on Harley Street, who was kind of dabbling in writing. Well,
1: he didn't even get to Harley Street. He was down, you know... and I was in South, South End. Yeah, yeah, South Sea. On. South South, South uh, Sea, sorry. Yeah. And indeed, a, a GP was not much of a practice. And so it transformed his life. And they became friends. And so I have them in my stories, like, in a sense, being Sherlock Holmes... And Dr. Watson, mm. they are my Holmes and Watson, and they get involved in different murder mysteries. And there's that whole amazing world of those guys, Bram Stoker, at the same period.
0: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. There's,
1: there's a dinner that I came across where six guys are having dinner. One of them is uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, created Sherlock Holmes. One of them is Oscar Wilde, who created, you know, the picture in the attic. One of them is Bram Stoker, who created Dracula, Dracula who was there because he was the. A manager for theatre manager,
0: wasn't he? Henry Irving. For Henry Irving. Absolutely.
1: And Arthur Conan Doyle wanted Henry Irving to play Conan Doyle, play Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes.
0: Did he ever play him, by no, the way? No, he
1: didn't. He didn't want to do it. He what played in he? another play by Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm. Conan Doyle's uh, brother in law was there, uh, who was invented cartoonist? Raffles the Gentleman Cracksman. Ah, of course, yeah. Also at this dinner was Robert Louis Stevenson. <laughs> Who created Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde? Yeah, and the sixth person at the same meal. These are the six guys sitting together. Was J. M. Barrie, who went on to create Peter Pan. Pan.
2: What was there
1: in the fog of London in the 1880s, 1890s that made these guys create these mythic characters that live with us, you know? The British love a murder mystery. Mm. People love a murder mystery. The, You know, those sort of books that you want to read in a cold winter's night. And
0: there's something about that era as well, the 1880s, 1890s. It's Jack the Ripper. It's the kind of, the, the, the height of the British Empire, the height of pomp, the height of sort of aristocracy and the upper classes, and yet this kind of, you know, simmering underworld in London as well. And also, as Oscar said, there's
1: nothing quite like an unexpected death for (laughs) lifting the spirits. Uh, (laughs) You know, I mean, or an unexpected uh, séance. One shouldn't laugh, but I knew um, Rod Hull. Do you remember Rod Hull? I do. Of EMI fame, yes. And Rod Hull, I know. I don't know why I'm saying this. Actually, I saw Rod Hull right at the end of his life with a friend of mine. They went to the theatre together. It was a snowy night. And Rod was complaining to the friend of mine about his uh, TV aerial. Oh, no. And my friend said, get up on the roof tonight. (laughs) And they'd had a bevy or two. Rod went back, got up onto the uh, roof that very night to fix his TV aerial, fell off and killed himself. You killed Rod Hull? Well, my friend did. (laughs) Um, I won't name him because... (laughs) Because otherwise the police will be interested. Well, Emu might sue. (laughs) And one shouldn't laugh, but there is a famous Chinese saying, there is no pleasure so great as watching a good friend fall off the roof. (laughs) Uh, And there is something. I mean, I like going (laughs) to...
0: Oh, those Chinese, they know their stuff, yeah, don't I do. they? I
1: mean, I like going to a memorial. I've reached the age now. A lot of my friends are dead. And I,
0: <laughs> it's, I, uh, it's a great day out of funeral,
1: isn't yeah, it? Well, in a way it is, you know. And I, I often do the address and I look out of, this and I think, well, I'm still here, just, and they're not, and that sort of <laughs> That's something, isn't it?
0: I heard that you described Nicholas Parsons as on day release from heaven. Ah, well that's a <laughs> rather good line, isn't it?
1: I hope I did say that. Yeah, that's a fitting of well, Wilde himself. He's going to be with us for a little while longer. I went to one of his Bunga Bunga parties last week. <laughs> there is snap in his celery, I can tell you. Oh, oh, oh. bet there is. Nicholas Parsons, 90 this year. Isn't that marvellous? Yeah,
0: I heard he takes more than just a minute as well. He's, uh... Uh, indeed, he can sustain it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Deviation,
1: plenty of that. Yeah. But very little no repetition. Hesitation. No hesitation.
0: <laughs> Good man, though. Yeah, I mean, the fact is, you've got so much going on, Giles, plus you've got this formula for happiness. Are you going to be the longest living man ever? Well, I don't know. The Queen Mother, who died, <laughs> aged
1: 102, she used to say that to be happy, to be happy all one needs in life, to be happy is to be content with what one has got.
0: So gin, then.
1: Which possibly, gin and jabonny in her case. (laughs) Uh, If you're the Queen Mother, what you've got probably is enough to be happy with. Yeah. (laughs) So, I don't know how long I will live, but I'm enjoying living by the day, by Mm. the hour, by the minute.
0: Listen, I think that's a great way to end it, Giles. Thank you for being educational, inspirational and downright hilarious.
1: You are brilliant. I love your podcast. I love Dave. I love everything. Come and see the show. Yes. You can come, because where are you based? Uh, London. Oh, London. Well, come to the one in Richmond. We're doing Richmond. We're doing Epsom. I'm going to something, I think, called the Bruce Forsyth Auditorium in Edmonton.
0: Is that in Bruce Forsyth?
1: No, I think it's in Bob Hope. Oh, okay. I think the theatre is called Bob Hope. And inside, I'm in the Bruce Forsyth... Anyway, it's somewhere in Edmonton. And I'm going to 60 different venues, and then I'm ending up in Leicester Square. Oh, Incredible. I should have thought about that. I'm ending up at the Leicester Square Theatre at the end of next April. We can debate what the statue is. We can debate what the... Come to see the show. And all actually. the dates are on your website. And all the dates are on my website, and I think you're brilliant. Thank you, Giles. It's Thank you very It's been a very exciting experience.
0: <laughs> Well, that's it for today's lovely little show and I'm sad to say it was also our penultimate, meaning that next week is the last of the series. Don't fret though. Well, obviously do fret a little. It's all part of the grieving process. But also don't fret because we've got a fantastic lineup to look forward to, including the French raconteur and Pomme de terre Marcel Lucant, and one of my favorites and the Dave Weekly's absolute gems greg davis making a triumphant return in the meantime check out our extensive back catalogue on itunes and tweet hello or whatever else pops into your head it doesn't matter to the show at join underscore dave and me at ben shires till then doodles doodles the dave weekly is a pixie production for dave hosted by me ben shires and produced by joel porter